Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors. Happy New Year to you as we get going again on um, something new. We've been doing First John for a long time, and it was beautiful. Uh, but today we're going to start with kind of New Year type stuff. We're going to be starting with some stuff that I would say are three words that are like, I mean, they are. They're very central to Hope Church, but the thing that's a little weird about that is it's not really central to Hope Church as much as it is central to like all churches everywhere. I, I don't know if you've ever been involved with like lots of different churches. Maybe you've moved around a lot. Maybe you know about different churches. But if you ever get to where you read a lot of Christian church websites, which I can say I have done, uh, there, there's a lot of consistency in the like lingo. You know, you read it, and I think the business culture has infected the church in some ways, but you read these different church websites, and they've always got like mission statements, and they've always got like vision statements, and you kind of go like, I don't know, didn't Jesus already settle that? But well, yeah, kind of, if you read across lots of different church vision statements and mission statements, you get the same kind of stuff. And at Hope Church, over the next, this week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at our kind of three-word summary of Christianity, which we, we say abide love, and multiply. Now, those three words, when we're saying abide, love, multiply, they, they talk about what Christianity talks about. Christianity is all about love. And abide is, is our love of God, God's love of us. Love, sounds a little redundant, but love is, is sort of our love of each other. That love from God spilling out Christian to Christian. But then also we have multiply, which is our love for everybody else. It's not just the people that we know that we're going to try and get better and better at loving. We're going to try and love the world. We're going to love people that are far from us and different from us. So how do we abide, love, and multiply? Well, today I want to start with one that is at the core of the others and can be a difficult change to do. So, so New Year's, everybody thinks about New Year, New You. Everybody maybe has the, the motivation to try and make some changes. It it's a very silly thing for the new year. It's a very arbitrary date. I mean, who cares really? You just put a 24 instead of a 23 on stuff. It's not that different from what happened a couple of weeks ago. And yet, it kind of works. You start a new year and you think, okay, starting now. Uh, if you're like me and you don't have like maybe as much self-control as you should, you feel like you say starting now a lot because you give yourself a rule and immediately break it. Uh, and you go, okay. Starting now, starting now. And so you've got a lot of stuff you've been meaning to change. And the New Year's just gives you a moment to say, okay, but really though, starting now. And that kind of change, uh, you know, it's difficult. There's a reason that change doesn't happen quick. Often the thing you're trying to change isn't as easy as just, you know, make an adjustment to your diet or make an adjustment to your budget. Um, we played uh, like a... You know, like a party game or a group game or something. You're at somebody's house and they're playing like a, they pull out some kind of, um, it was like a creativity type game, you know, hit or miss. But the one category that they had was you had to write a title for your autobiography, which of course is supposed to be dumb and stupid and obviously nobody's going to have an autobiography or whatever. But, but if you were to have an autobiography, what would you write it? And it was a game. It was supposed to be fun. It wasn't like um you know, team building or something. And we were all in this house, and, and I just thought about, because I'm a preacher, I'm thinking all the time about communicating, and uh, I had this sort of phrase that I thought about. <laughs> so I put it down as my autobiography title, and it was, Fat and Hungry, Life and Times of a Big Guy. And, and that was going to be, 
And the reason I liked it, or the reason it stuck for me, uh, is maybe you feel that. How is it possible that in the morning I'm upset with my shape, um, and yet I also feel hungry? How, how am I eating so much that my body can do nothing with it other than just pile it up? Uh, and yet, constantly through the day, I have the thought, I could eat. You know, I, I could eat some more. Lunch is mostly over, and I'm pretty bummed out about that. Like, why, why doesn't food work? Fat and hungry. So the reason that we want to talk about that, or the reason that I kind of bring that up to begin this morning, is because it gets at the heart of what abide is, is going to really fix for you. You have desires, but are those desires right? Are those desires what will really fill you up? See, the trick with, with eating and still feeling hungry is that I wasn't really trying to fill my belly. I was trying to fill my heart. You know, I'm eating, and I'm eating probably emotionally, right? Like you eat and you say, well, no, I want my heart to be filled. Well, food doesn't go there. You know, we've got doctors. Food goes other places. It doesn't go to your heart. So if you try to fill your heart by filling your belly, your heart stays empty, and your belly gets full. Like it gets big. That makes sense. Well, that's a silly one. You know, if you overeat, it might kill you. But, but there's a lot of other things that you might do um, that could corrupt you a lot further than that. There are a lot of other desires that you might go after that, that might take you a lot further. And that, that's what I want to think about. I want to think about broken desire. I want to think about a desire that might actually work. Because we've got a lot of desire, but we have very little satisfaction. And C.S. Lewis, famous writer for, for, in Christian circles from the last century, he talked a lot about desire. And he said famously in a book called Mere Christianity, which I would commend to you. If you've got a couple people have texted me to say like, hey, you know, what's a, what's a book I could read this year? And they're thinking about like good books, not just like fun books. So that's why they text me. But they, oh, what are like a Christian book or what's a supposed to book that I could read this year? And so, hey, if you want one, this isn't really what I said to those people, but Mere Christianity is just a fantastic one. But he says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy my desire that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. What's he saying? Well, it's kind of interesting if you're a Christian to think about what might be the heavenly version of the goods that you enjoy. I love doing that. And I think about it more and more as I get older. It's like, okay, this is a good Diet Coke, but what's like the heavenly version going to be? Probably not diet, right? Like, what's the heavenly version going to be? And you get into that, you start thinking about it a lot. Like, what's the heavenly version of, of uh, this kind of food or this kind of conversation or this kind of, like, game or this kind of pastime? What's the heavenly version of ice skating or bowling? Or, like, what's the heavenly version of things that are good? We'll go further. What's the heavenly version of the things that are really good on earth? What's the heavenly version of love? What's the heavenly version of family? Lewis is pointing to that. He's saying there are things in this world that are copies that are meant to point you up to heavenly realities. Things that will be. Things that are promised and even are now. 
Well, what is he talking about? He's saying that you are made to know love. And not just to experience the feeling of love. That's not really a thing. You feel love because you're loved by or you love someone. There's a person on the other end of that equation. To say that you love God or you experience God's love is because you know God. And that's what he's getting at. He's saying that what we are created for, what these desires are meant to stoke in us is a a look up, a, a desire for love from God. And that's what we mean by abide. John Calvin is a a famous reformer in the Christian church, said, the proper condition of creatures is to keep close to God. If that's true, how you doing? If that's true, how you doing? I heard a comedian talking about how he hears politicians saying all kinds of stuff they want to change, and he always wants to say, yeah, but what about death? Have you fixed death yet? That seems to be our biggest problem is not taxes, but death. And like no politician obviously can fix that. But he just is saying the thing that we all should be thinking. There is a problem here. How are you doing with that big problem? There is a solution here, Christian. How does your life reflect that solution? We say abide. All right, well, what do we mean by Abide. We're talking about being in relationship with this God. Does anybody feel like they pray too much? <laughs> Haven't met you yet. I don't know. <laughs> That's never been something anybody's ever confessed to me. It's like, I don't know, man. I'm just praying. Everything's neglected. I just pray too much. No, that never comes up. Why? Well, I, don't, I don't know how well we're doing this abiding. What, what does abiding mean? Well, let me model for you for a second how you might answer a question like that. You have in your head a a question that comes up. What does the Bible say about? And if it's a specific word or a specific concept, something that's helpful is what's called a concordance. Now, today you don't really need them because you can just go to any website that has Bibles on it or any app that has a Bible on it. And you can just type in a word and it automatically indexes for you every single place in Scripture where that word is used. Well, I did that. I put in abide just to see where all does the word abide come up. Well, it comes up 42 times total in Scripture. Nine times in the Old Testament, 33 times in the New Testament. All right, so within that 33, you can break it down a little further and find that four writers in the New Testament talk about, I'm sorry, other writers in the New Testament talk about abiding four times. It comes up in writing four times in the New Testament by other writers. But John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, he talks about the word abide 29 times. More than half of the times it comes up in Scripture, it comes from him. So what is he talking about when he talks about abiding or when he quotes Christ talking about abiding? Well, you look through the list of stuff that comes up when you just do that concordance. One of the ones that comes up first is John six fifty six, which says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, that's a weird one, right? Like if you're just going through a concordance, you just have verses that pop up. That one's going to take a little homework. You're going to have to read around it. And you're going to have to know something about the Lord's Supper. You're going to have to know something about the Old Testament understanding of sacrifice. If you don't, that may not be super helpful right off the bat. So maybe you scroll down, you look at some other um, entries that come up, and you see in John 15, 4, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, now that's a little bit more helpful, isn't it? 
You don't have to be a gardener to understand that the metaphor there means that abiding is sort of a life-giving union between a branch and a vine. A branch is a branch when it's connected to the vine. When it's disconnected, it's just a stick. Well, what's the difference? Life. You don't go to a stick looking for fruit, but you might go to a branch. What's the difference? Life. Okay, so I'm understanding there. That when he's talking about abiding, he's talking about some sort of a life-giving union between two things, me being one of them. If you look at 1 John, which we just spent a lot of time studying as a church, he says in 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Oh, so now we're putting a personal edge on it, aren't we? It's not just abide in the vine, and that could mean like be nicer, apportion your budget more correctly, walk with your kids more consistently. It's, it's not just a principle thing now, is it? When he's saying abide, he's talking about a person, so much so that when God returns, when he opens up the sky and he's like back, that you'll run to him as someone that you know. That it'll be like somebody opening the door on Christmas, some family you haven't seen in a minute, and you run to them. You don't do that as an adult. I don't do that. People get nervous if you run at them. You know, we've already talked about my size. But, but, you know, when God comes, that you would come to him as a child coming to a father. That you wouldn't shrink from him, but that you would run to him. Well, that takes practice, friend. It seems a little weird to think that you would do that one day if you don't do that now. He's talking about abiding in a personal relationship with God, well, what does that look like? I think you know, but let's dig a little further. So Psalm 25 is where I want to sit for our remaining minutes. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn, you can tap your way. If it's a digital copy to Psalm 25, we're going to be in verse 11. If it's paper Bible, you may have a little hard time seeing in the, the lighting in here, but if it's digital, please pull it out. I won't be offended at all. I won't think you're texting, even if you are. Uh, go to Psalm 25. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give you one in a readable English translation, especially on the first-ish Sunday of the year. Have a Bible. Just have one ready. And then if that thing hits you where you're like, hey, this is a change I want to make, you're ready. You got one. And it's in a readable English translation. There are so many great ones. Psalm 25, starting verse 11, the psalmist says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, we don't have enough time to spend as much time as I want to on that verse, but I take heart in the fact that we preach that verse every Sunday at Hope Church. So come back, we'll keep talking about that. But for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he, being the Lord, instruct in the way that man should choose. That person's soul shall abide in well-being. And his offspring shall inherit the land. Again, there's so much here that would be great if we had time to dig into what all that's talking about. But look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Oh, why do I bring that up? 
Psalms, just like we did on uh, Christmas Eve Eve. We talked a lot about a psalm. Why? Because psalms do a really good job of talking about the experience of somebody who is a follower of God, is trying to get near God, to understand him, to worship him. Experiencing a fallen world as somebody who is a follower of God. So there's psalms where he's crying out to God. And there's psalms where the person that's writing is, is yelling at God or weeping before God or crying out to God. Psalms are a great place to go to figure out what the walk of a Christian looks like. Psalms are a great place to go for all kinds of things, but for that also. Let's start, though, with, with the first verse we mentioned here, verse 11. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. If we talk about abiding and why you don't abide, we might talk about a skill set problem. We might talk about how you don't really know what we mean by that. We might talk about why you don't know how to do that. What that even looks like. Okay, great, we'll deal with that. But it may mean, and for many of us, I think this is the case. I think it's the enemy's number one strategy. For many of us, we have a problem coming to abide with the Lord because we know something about the Lord. We know that he's holy. So to walk into his presence, it's like wanting to go to a police station. It's like wanting to go to a principal's office. You don't want to go to those places. Why? Well, I mean, hopefully you don't have outstanding warrants. <laughs> but you know that, that they could get you. And if you're guilty and you walk into those places, you know that they, they're going to get you. So why would you go and spend time with the Holy One when you know that like, they're going to get you? He knows what you've done and, and you know what you've done. Boy, the blindness, the hypocrisy to feel like you could stand before God and he would be like impressed. I think for many of us, we don't want to abide because we just, we know too much about ourselves. We can't stand before the holy. Well, do you see how this thing starts? If God's holy, he's also wise. He's also aware that this problem was going to come up. So much so that he surmounted it. And we'll talk about that when we finish, kind of coming back around to verse 15. But shame can be relieved. And it's the one thing that he begins by, relieving. And yet, I think we need to be wise enough about humanity and how our hearts work to know that that shame relief is not a one-time thing. It's a thing that has to be kind of practiced. It's a thing that has to be understood over time. It's a thing that has to be echoed in community. You can't just say it in your own head. It's part of why so many people need their identity to be affirmed by the community. It's not just that they're pushing their agenda on you. It's that you don't really have an identity if the community around you doesn't affirm that identity. Sorry, it's just how people work. You need other Christians to look at you and say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to live in this shame, man. I'm going to help you never do that again. Sin is still sin. We'll talk about that in like 30 seconds. But, but you don't have to live in this shame, man. Jesus has paid for it. That's how I, I think the psalmist begins this segment of his psalm because it's such a huge hurdle for people when they think about being with the Lord. Well, other people maybe, but not me. No, you. He makes a way for your shame to go away. And we'll talk about that in a second. Two, though, he immediately starts talking about something that I think should be talked about quickly when you start saying that shame will be relieved because unfortunately, criminals that we are, as soon as you say, hey, you can be forgiven, there's a party that goes, then 
then I, I can do whatever I want though, right? Oh, forgiveness, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That means that I can kind of get some more stuff through this forgiveness portal here. You're making a way for mercy? Exactly where are the edges of that mercy? Because I want to fill up the corners. Like I want to get as much life as I can. And we define that often by things that God doesn't approve of, doesn't love, he, he hates. We'll put that back into the context, not of a police officer that may catch you and may not, but in the context of a relationship. Somebody says they hate something. And in early in marriage counseling, there's all kinds of funny stuff. Oh, I hate that he squeezes toothpaste from the middle when he should roll it up from the bottom. That comes up in like every marriage book. I don't know that anyone has had a serious marital argument about it. Come talk to me afterward. But if that's been you, I mean, maybe it is farts or maybe it is like how you do chip bags or maybe it is stuff that just seems really small that bothers marriages early. But, but there are way bigger things that screw up relationships, right? He doesn't just do a chip bag in a way I hate. He sleeps around. She, she doesn't just, you know, roll up the toothpaste weird. She never talks to me. She, she doesn't like me. That'll kill a relationship. All right, put this stuff back into the context of the Lord, friends. Do you sleep around? Is he your God? Or do you have some others on the side? Do you interact with this God? Do you talk to him? And Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. For all the Pharisees in the room, you immediately start trying to figure out how that's not what he meant. Because how do you physically pray without ceasing? <laughs> but the point should be to live in a perfect union with the Lord. I can't. Yeah, of course. But you're growing in that way. You're desiring it. You're abiding. Do you see how he's commanding obedience? Well, of course, it makes sense. Who's the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. So yeah, there's forgiveness. No, there's not shame. But there's also not just this crazy disobedience. There's also obedience that happens and grows. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as you have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It just makes sense. The guy that keeps sleeping around, you, you, don't, you don't think, well, he really loves his wife. I know he's unfaithful. Really? That's what he's describing there. Again, Pharisee world, we immediately read this and say, oh, okay, we must earn his love with obedience to his commandments. But that's not what he's talking about at all. Man, you got to figure this stuff out. you got to put a target in your life on the things that God hates and start just trying to blow that stuff out of the water. Hey, if change is hard on your diet or change is hard on your budget, change is really hard on some of this stuff. It is. You know, some people are going to look down on you and say, hey, grow up, get better, don't do that. We're all struggling or whatever. And they have this kind of like, oh, well, that's not the church. That may be what happens in like a workout room. That may be what happens in like a, a gym somewhere. But in the church, when you tell somebody what you're dealing with, they're going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Either they've dealt with it themselves or they know somebody close that has really dealt with that same thing. Why? Because that's everybody in the church. 
We're all people that are far from God that he has brought near by the blood of his son, not by our obedience. And having brought us near, he teaches us the house rules. He teaches us how things work in this family. And so listen, if you're having, if you're having problems abiding and that abiding problem comes from a lot of shame, well, let's deal with that shame by understanding the gospel, but let's also deal with that shame by making some changes in your life. And if you say, well, that's really hard to do, duh, get some people to stand around you and help you do that. In the church, you're going to find not only sympathetic ears, but you're going to find people that can restore you with gentleness. That has been my experience. I would love for that to be your experience, to find people here that when you speak the truth of what's going on in your world, they meet you with generosity and they help to bring you healing and life. Community groups are a great place to do that. Get involved. We'll talk more about it next week. 1 John 2, 6. We just talked about 1 John so much. Whoever says he abides in God ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And what does that look like? Well, man, it starts to look like a friendship. You start abiding in the Lord like that. And you're abiding because your shame is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. You start abiding in the Lord and wanting to do things his way. You want to start speaking his way and and enjoying entertainment the way that he would. and, And start raising your kids the way he would. And start building friendships in the community the way that he would. Okay, all right, here we go. Got some change happening. There's some life taking place. And what does that end up looking like? Well, look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. That's bananas. The friendship of the Lord. All right. Do you ever, and this is something that organizations do when you hit a new year. You know, individuals or families, when you hit a new year, you got all kinds of goals for change. But organizations, when you hit the end of a fiscal year or the end of a calendar year, should have those same conversations. What are we doing? Why are we here? Are we following the goals that we set? Do we have some mission drift? Where is our success? Where is our failure? How do we figure this out? Churches, and I know I made fun of business practices getting in the church earlier, but churches should have similar conversations. Where are we going? What are we doing? What is this Sunday after Sunday experience adding up to? Well, at Hope Church, we're here to make disciples and plant churches. We don't put those in any particular order. You plant churches, you're going to make disciples. You make disciples, you're going to plant churches. They just go together. And that's what we do. We're here to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches. We're going to try and do that all the time. That's what we're always working towards. We have a thousand ideas about how we're going to do that. And as those ideas become closer to reality, we're going to bring you in further and further on those things. Come back next week. Come back in two weeks when we talk about multiply. I'm going to continue to lay out what we have done, what we are doing, and what we will do. But as you think about what it looks like to be a Christian for 50 years, when you think about what what all this is adding up to, I want you to take a moment to really value being a 50-year friend of God. That God, in his abiding with you, is not just seeking to sort of, I don't know, fill in the blank of whatever you think God's love looks like. He actually intends to engage with you in such a way That when somebody says, I don't know, who are your friends? The older you get, the easier it is to answer that question because you got like a friend, you know? Maybe you have lots of acquaintances and maybe in the church you have lots of friends because you have lots of people that you really care about. 
But the older you get, they go, who's your friend? You're like, oh, yeah, Chad. Really? Yeah, I've only got one. Chad, it's easy to think of. We played basketball together a long time ago. He sends me a Christmas card. Chad, you know. That's your friend, you know. Friendship really does matter. It's, it's something super valuable. Again, love. Next week, come back. But do you understand that God is offering that kind of relationship with himself? Oh, man. Again, we're out of time. But look at Abraham. Look at Moses. Abraham, over and over again in Scripture, is called God's friend. James 2, 2 Chronicles. Isaiah 41. Listen, if you're a reader and you got a second, later today, read the whole chapter of Isaiah 41. Please. Look at what it says in verse 8 about Abraham being God's friend. But just look at the whole of that chapter and try and understand how it impacts your relationship with the Lord. Moses was a, a, a leader in the Old Testament. It said that he was face to face with the Lord in Exodus 33. And not face to face as though he was like judgment time and God almost cut his head off. Even though later in the chapter, God's holiness is discussed. And it's a very interesting thing to think about. But he's face to face with God in a close loving way. You get to Colossians and it makes it very clear that the whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus. That being face to face with God was a reality for so many people in the New Testament time and understanding the word and praying to God now in the spirit, we have that same kind of closeness that we can still see the father. You, like David, have the opportunity to fellowship with God. There's a famous story in the Old Testament where a king named David, he was the second king and the first good one over the people of Israel. And he had this moment where he looked around and said, we're doing great. We got money. We got safety. We need to build a temple so that God doesn't have to keep living in this tent. There was a tabernacle. It was this really nice tent, but a tent. I mean, you can tell you it's a nice tent, but come on, you know, it's still a tent. And it was, it was just still a tent. It was God's tent. It was the one he designed, but it was... It was a tent. And David said, I should build him a house. He should have a house way bigger than all these other people and certainly than me. And he told the prophet, and the prophet was like, do all that's in your heart. And as soon as he said that, and they go to bed that night, the next morning, God made it really clear. No, no, no. Don't do that. I got a plan. It's all going to work out fine. But I have been in this tent, not because I didn't have the, the money to build a house. Not because I'm not important enough to have a house. I've been in a tent because I want to be with you. <laughs> like I'm moving you around and I want to be right in the center of it. I want to be right in the thick of all of you people. So I got a tent. Like somebody that follows fish around the country or, you know, like a uh, fish with a pH, you know, people that follow bands around the country. You got to get a tent. Why? Because you got to be where they are. God wanted to be where we are. Man, listen, he wanted to tabernacle with us. And that's what we get to the New Testament in John 1 where it talks about God dwelling with us when the word became flesh. It means that God in Jesus Christ wanted to be with us. Not just the nation state of Israel, which was always a way of seeing the whole of humanity, but literally the whole of humanity as his Holy Spirit is poured out on his church. God wants to forgive you and pull you close. He wants to teach you and pull you close. He wants to be with you and be your friend. Do you abide in him? Because I'm going to tell you, that's your problem. That's what you're seeking. That's what all these desires are after. 
I never tell you the title of a sermon, but now that you've kind of heard the fat and hungry thing, the title of this sermon, if you try to look it up online, which nobody will, but if you did, is Fat and Hungry or Healthy and Full. Why? Not like healthy physically. You can eat straight and still get cancer. I mean, you're not going to do great physically, but healthy in your heart, full in your heart. And then when you do die, sooner or later, because of bad eating or because of a car accident or whatever else, more likely, apparently, to get murdered by a stranger than somebody that you know. That used to be a thing. You're definitely going to get killed by somebody you know. Now, uh, it was more likely to be a stranger. And again, the old joke, uh, authorities now say, introduce yourself to as many people as possible. <laughs> Pretty good joke. Pretty good joke. So now, however it is that you are going to end, however it is that you are going to end, you go to stand before a God that you know. And not just in a theological sense. And not just because you know that you know the Lord in Christ. You know that you know him because you know that you know him. You spend time with him every day. Well, how do I do that? Okay. Again, more than 30 minutes. But just crack that book. Open that Bible and read something. You don't know what it says? All right. Hey, God time is a thing that we put online. It's easy to get to, and it's even easier to sign up for a little text list. I get a text every morning, 7 o'clock, and I wrote God time, so I rarely click the te text, honestly. <laughs> just being real, I know how to have quiet times, and I do that. But if you don't, and you want to, you just click it, and it takes you to a Bible verse and two paragraphs about that verse, little prayer prompt, you're out. We're talking about 45 seconds, but it's a beginning. It's something. You can find it on the website, and I'd love to help you sign up for that little text. What are you doing to interact with this Lord. And you say, well, I don't know the Lord. It's not about knowing him and the degree to which I get to know him. I just don't know him at all. Okay. Well, hey, that's what we exist for, is to introduce you to him. <laughs> Can we introduce you to this Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily? Can, can we introduce you to the Savior, the one who shed his blood so that your punishment could get paid. When we talk about faith in Jesus, we don't just mean believing he exists. We mean trusting him to save you. Oh, man. In every chair, there's a way for you to get in contact with us. You can either fill out the little piece of paper and put it in the bin. You can write, there's a little QR code. You can interact with us digitally, and I'm here. I know I'm in black, but I'll be easy to find. I'll be right up here. And I would love to talk to you afterward to just speak with you more. Let's figure this out. This is what you need. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do pray that people come back. I pray that they hear again and again about how our eyes can ever be toward the Lord because you will pluck our feet out of the net, Lord. You will save us from condemnation. You'll save us from death. Lord, dying, we will live. You've taken the sting out of death. You've, you've allowed us to go through it. Not just dying, but, but living, Father. That our soul can abide in well-being because we become your, your offspring. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what those things mean. And that understanding and believing, for Father, we would have life in your name. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.